If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell. Before we begin today's episode, I just wanted to give a quick apology and thank you to all the fans here listening for the kind of wacky release schedule we've had to kind of sit ourselves with these past couple weeks. I've had a lot of stuff I had to deal with uh, personally that have made kind of putting out episodes on time a little bit difficult, and I'm hoping that pretty soon we'll be able to get back to releasing regularly every Wednesday, but you can still expect an episode every single week, so long as when I drop the episode is between like Wednesday and Saturday afternoon. So thank you again so much for your patience, and let's get on to the show. Today's episode will focus on an idea that has been out there at least as long as I can remember. Since the dawn of industrial chemistry, there have been questions about the safety of these new compounds, some of which have never been found in nature before, on human life and the environment. This discussion became even more important with the use of some of these compounds in foods, cosmetics, and pharmaceuticals. Now, of course, we have the modern-day fears of things like GMOs, dye additives, and other filler components, but maybe one of, if not the most common chemical fear in our foods is the concern over high-fructose corn syrup. High-fructose corn syrup is an additive to foods to make them sweeter, to bind them together, and to act as a filler component in various sorts of sweet foodstuff. It's still extremely commonplace in most of the food eaten by many of us, and especially the poorest among us, while those with more cash on hand can shop at one of the almost infinite number of shops, restaurants, and chains who have made a pretty penny off of replacing components like high-fructose corn syrup with other sorts of syrup made from agave or aloe or whatever. What is high-fructose corn syrup? How do we make it? Is it dangerous? And what sort of pseudoscience has been built up around this sticky, sweet compound? Well, put on your best artisanal, locally made, petrochemically based fiber sweater, and let's get sugary in this week's episode! Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast! Today's episode, High Fructose Corn Syrup! Hey folks, just wanted to give a quick shout out before we start this episode to a wonderful Dark Myths podcast I think you should definitely check out called The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. That show has become quickly one of my favorites on Dark Myths. The Cthulhu Mythos and HP Lovecraftian horror is something that I had never really checked out before I started listening to that show. And since I've just been like devouring that stuff completely. It's an awesome show great sound design, a great host, and I think you should really go check it out. Again, that show is called The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Go check it out and all our other shows at darkmyths.org. High fructose corn syrup is one of those boogeymen of the modern age. It has become ubiquitous for the argument about modern food and modern life more generally being inundated with chemicals and chemistries of all sorts. Now, on its face, I think the argument that chemicals are bad 
is sort of silly because like everything is chemicals and chemistry, right? But I think a more elegant form of this argument that we don't know for certain the effects of changing the natural order of things and what effect that may have on our world and our health is a more interesting and worthwhile point of argument. When we create a new compound in a laboratory, we don't know for certain that it's going to be safe for us, that it won't destroy some food chain somewhere, or cause long-term cancers or any number of other terrible things. And in many ways, the public's concern about new chemical compounds or processes is supported by history, right? I mean, even the history of this show is littered with episodes on radioactivity and its effects on human health, carbon dioxide's effect on the environment, and we're going to, of course, cover even more cases of science gone awry in future episodes. High fructose corn syrup is interesting, though, because it's one of those chemicals that is almost a gateway to the various food-related conspiracies that are out there. It's become ubiquitous for the argument that the added chemicals in the food we eat are the cause of a variety of modern societal ills and diseases, including obesity, increased rates of cancer, ADHD and autism, and pretty much every other disease or issue that we can't find an exact cause for. But is high fructose corn syrup one of those cases of science putting out a dangerous product to the populace before testing? Is it media hype? Or does the truth sit somewhere in the middle? The first question we have to answer is just what the hell high fructose corn syrup is, and how do we make it? To answer this question, we need to talk about, in general, the history of food chemistry, food engineering, and in particular the creation and use of various sweeteners. Now, the obvious sweetener we're all thinking about right now is simple table sugar, which chemically is a compound known as sucrose. Sucrose is a compound that is made up of two smaller molecules formed together, in particular glucose and fructose. These compounds are known as simple sugars, and are extremely important biochemical compounds because they make up a huge amount of different things. Glucose in particular is a very important molecule in nature because it is super prevalent in all sorts of things due to it being a cyclic compound. Now a cyclic compound is exactly what it sounds like, a chemical that's shaped like a circle, or in the case of chemicals, they're shaped like a six-sided hexagon. The hexagon is particularly interesting shape for chemistry and physics because it's extremely stable meaning that organic chemicals, those that contain carbon chains with hydrogen and oxygens, tend to like to exist as these compounds if they can. Now, why is it stable? This is sort of an interesting question for chemistry, and particularly organic chemistry, but I think a relatively understandable and entertaining explanation is to think about these atoms as being primarily negative charges. Right? So imagine you have a magnet. If you put a magnet next to another magnet with the same charge, it'll repel, right? But if it has a different charge, then the magnet will attract. The outer surface of an atom is all electrons, right? You have that inner center that's the nucleus with the protons and the neutrons, and those are positively charged or neutral. And then you have the outer kind of section, which is the electrons that are negatively charged. So if you have an atom and another atom, and you bring them close to each other, what'll happen is, as you get closer, they're going to want to repel away from each other, just like with a magnet and another magnet that have the same charge. So a chemical bond is a special case where these atoms are able to exist near each other, really close to each other, 
but still far enough apart that their electron clouds aren't interacting and not causing too much repulsive force. Now, why do atoms then bond? There's a couple of different types of bonds that can form, but in the case of organic chemicals, you're forming what's known as a covalent bond. In a covalent bond, you have an atom that is lacking an electron and an atom that would like to have another electron, and they get together and they share electrons between each other. So the energy for them to share the electrons is lower than the energy needed for them to be far apart. Or another way to say that is the, the force that makes them want to come together is greater than the repulsive forces that want them to be pushed away from each other. But these atoms still have to exist in a way where their electron clouds won't interact too much. So if you put two atoms together to bond them, and in organic chemistry, they're mostly carbon-carbon bonds, and then you have things like hydrogen or oxygens coming off of those carbons. And another quick important point, I suppose, carbon always wants to form four bonds. That makes carbon chemistry really simple. So if you put a carbon and you bond it with another carbon, you're going to need three hydrogens on each of those carbons, right? This is all getting really complicated and into the weeds. But what I'm, what's, what's the important point here is, if you have two carbons and you bond them together, you're going to make a line shape, right? And that makes sense. You bond things, it'll make a line, whatever. Any two points always make a line. Well, if you get a third carbon and you add it to that chain, what'll happen is it'll actually start to form a zigzag pattern. So it's not a straight line anymore. It's a line where each carbon is offset from the other carbon by some angle. And this angle is going to be the same for all carbon-carbon bonds. It's actually really interesting. And so this means that with... Uh, this is a good way of explaining this, I suppose, going back to the nanomaterial episode, is kind of like connects, right? You have those center pieces, and they have a certain number of bonds that can come off the center. And some of those bonds are offset by some angle from the center, right? So like the white piece in connects, there's, I think, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight bonds that can be formed off the white piece in a connects piece. Um, you can imagine for an organic compound, as opposed to it going like parallel, so right from one of those corner pieces that are like the cross on the center, it's going to go to one of the ones that's angled. So I guess another quick, good, dirty explanation is in a linear bond, it might look like they're both being bonded you know, from like uh, the, the Western connection, if we're thinking about a compass. But when there's a zigzag arrangement, it's like you're going from the center of one carbon, you're going northeast first and then finding another carbon. Then you're going southeast and finding another carbon. It's so a northeast and southeast and northeast and southeast up and down like that. So what this means then ultimately for cyclic compounds is that some cyclic compounds are extremely stable because you can form very close bonds between atoms, between carbons, but still be far enough apart that there's very little interaction between the negative parts of the atoms. So a hexagon 
is any is is the smallest one of those cyclic compounds we can form that has the perfect amount of space between each carbon atom. Now, since this cyclic hexagon is so stable, and particularly glucose, um, which is like the most simple type of that hexagon you can form almost, since it's so stable, it means it's extremely common in nature. So for example, carbohydrates are simply a bunch of glucose or fructose molecules connected to each other into a long chain. Cellulose and hemicellulose that make up trees and plants are also just a bunch of glucose chains, and a significant amount of other biochemicals are made up of various combinations of glucose, fructose, and other compounds very similar to these. Okay, so glucose and fructose are basically the same thing, and when put together, they make sucrose or table sugar. We're good to go so far but you might already see a problem with the argument that fructose is bad for you. If fructose is already what's in table sugar, then wouldn't it make sense that if fructose is super bad for you, then glucose and sucrose might be as well? Like, why does it matter which sugar is being used in your food, since they digest to the same thing anyways? In other words, if sucrose is made up of one glucose and one fructose molecule, and you eat 10 pieces of sucrose versus 10 pieces of fructose, aren't you ultimately getting the same amount of fructose anyways? Well, my dear inquisitive and intelligent listeners, we'll get to that, I promise you. But it's pretty much the reason that this part of the argument that fructose is worse than glucose or table sugar kind of falls apart. Anyways, if fructose is already found in table sugar, then why make it in the first place? Couldn't we just be using table sugar in our foods? Well, the problem lies in the fact that sucrose is a solid, and solids are annoyingly difficult to work with in very large quantities. See, pretty much the majority of industrial chemistry has been built around the knowledge we've gained about flowing fluids, and in particular liquids, around using pipes and pumps, and mixing them together using giant stirring pots. The first chemicals we really had to create a chemical plant to alter for us were petrochemicals, in particular the production of kerosene from heavy crude oils. And really, the bulk of industrial chemical engineering as it ultimately became known hasn't progressed all that much from the knowledge we gained in moving around petrochemicals and breaking them apart into their individual constituents. And solids are notoriously difficult to process as part of chemical engineering processes. First off, to move solids around requires loads of energy, since they have to be pushed constantly and produce much more friction than liquids or gases. At the same time, moving solids is difficult because they don't flow in the same way that fluids do, so we need to use sort of interesting methods to move them through chemical plants, such as using rotating screws to force them forward. And solids don't mix as well and aren't as easy to work with in reactors as liquid components are. And we actually have a good example of that in cooking, where liquid components such as corn syrup are often used instead of solid sugars in order to obtain a smoother resulting product. There's also the very real danger of light powders mixing with air to create an explosive mixture, resulting in what's known as a powder or dust explosion. This is the cause of those YouTube videos where idiotic husbands put baby powder in their wives' hair dryers, resulting in a fireball that scorches their wives' love right out of them, I'm sure. 
So in general, when it comes to chemicals, if we can find a liquid version of the chemical we're hoping to use in mass production, we will try to use it. Like I actually just hinted at earlier, one of the more useful potential sugar sources for a liquid compound come from fruits or vegetables that contain lots of carbohydrates or sugars. So for example, beets or agave or corn can be used to create sugary syrups that can then be substituted for solid sucrose. In the case of corn, for example, the resulting corn syrup is primarily glucose. That simple sugar, which we said earlier, was very similar chemically to fructose and a little bit of water. Corn syrup is produced from cornstarch, with starch being a big chain of glucose molecules strung together. And so we can break it apart with diluted hydrochloric acid to end up breaking the starch into its constituent individual glucose molecules. After removal of the acidic components, the resulting water glucose mixture is then sold as corn syrup, and you can still find it on store shelves today in your local supermarket. Initially, this glucose syrup was thought of as a potential substitute for sucrose in various foods. But glucose isn't very soluble in water, which means that there is only a limited amount of glucose that can be mixed with water to give a smooth, homogeneous solution. And glucose has about the same sugariness as sucrose, meaning that one gram of glucose gives about the same sugary taste as one gram of sucrose. On the other hand, fructose, the other component of sucrose, is almost twice as sugary as glucose and sucrose having a more intense flavor and a more long-lasting taste. At the same time, fructose is one of the most soluble sugars in water, meaning that you can put a much higher content of fructose into water as a mixture without getting solid chunks forming in your syrup. It's these two reasons in particular that initially made fructose such a desirable sucrose substitute. The ability to get more bang for your buck, as it were, in terms of sugary flavor, and the ease with which fructose could be mixed with water to make very concentrated fructose syrups. The problem, however, lies in the fact that fructose, although a component of sucrose molecules, is not all that common in everyday life. We find fructose naturally in some fruits and vegetables, particularly honey and berries, although generally in small amounts. Honey is probably the most concentrated natural source for pure fructose, with almost 75% of honey being sugars of some kind, and about half of that being fructose. The fructose content is actually why honey may sometimes seem to be more sweet than table sugar, because of its high fructose content. Anyways, this means that if food chemists wanted to begin using fructose to replace sucrose, they had to find an economically viable way of producing it. And it wasn't until the 1970s that a method for producing high contents of fructose was found. The method to generate high fructose corn syrup was invented in the 1970s by the Clinton Corn Processing Company, utilizing an enzymatic digestion process for starches that was developed by Yoshiyuki Takasaki at the Japanese National Institute of Advanced Industrial Science and Technology. This method took a very cheap and very widely available stock product corn, and milled it into cornstarch and simple carbohydrates. The starch was then acidified to produce glucose-heavy corn syrup, which is then converted to fructose by the addition of an enzyme. Enzymes are basically compounds that take in a certain molecule, change it in some way, and then allow that changed molecule to escape, leaving the enzyme behind for another reaction. 
In this way, they're catalyst species, with a catalyst in general being some chemical compound that while not consumed in a chemical reaction, does make it happen more quickly or with less energy input from the surroundings. The resulting fructose is then mixed with various amounts of water and glucose to change the flavor profile to result in what is known as high fructose corn syrup, a fructose glucose water mix that can contain as much as 90% fructose by weight. So ultimately this means that high fructose corn syrup is extremely similar to glucose or sucrose and is just another simple sugar that is normally present in the body anyways. It became an extremely commonplace replacement for sugar, however, because of the economic benefits of utilizing this compound in lieu of other sugars. Because fructose is sweeter in taste than glucose or sucrose, it's possible to use less of the compound to produce more flavor, meaning less costs going towards raw material for the production of foods. Due to its easy solubility in water, it's possible to transport it and pump it around a chemical plant as a liquid even for very high fructose concentrations, making it much easier to work with than sucrose or glucose. And because of the ease with which corn that is the feedstock for high fructose corn syrup is made, and its just general availability in the United States, it quickly became much cheaper than competing sugar compounds. And this cheapness has only increased with its increased use causing corn to become a much more important agricultural product of the United States. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Adding to this importance, we have subsidies for corn manufacturers and a pretty solid corn lobby in the U.S. politics, and you end up with a chokehold on the sugar market. At its peak in 1999, high fructose corn syrup consumption in the United States was as high on average as 37.5 pounds or 17 kilograms of fructose per person per year. That's about a third of our average yearly consumption of sugars, significantly higher than would normally be possible without the use of fructose syrups in various foods. Now that number has since decreased to around 15 pounds per person per year for fructose, or around 8 kilograms, although our consumption of sugar overall is still near the highest it's ever been at around 170 pounds or about 80 kilograms per year per person. <laughs> so, all right, that is the history of high fructose corn syrup up to the modern day. Now let's talk about the conspiracies and fears around the compound. Generally, I would say that concerns about high fructose corn syrup can be grouped into a few common categories. First is the concern that it is the cause of the obesity epidemic in the United States and the entire Western world in general. Second would be the idea that fructose causes cancers or other chronic illnesses to show themselves that would not normally be as prevalent as they are now. And third, the idea is that high fructose corn syrup is making us more susceptible to government mind control and suggestion by making us stupid, depressed, anxious, have ADHD or autism, or any other variety of mental health challenges. We'll take each of these in turn, although they are sort of interrelated in kind of strange but fascinating ways. Now, before we get into the obesity argument, let's get something on the table right now. I am a fat dude, 
I've always been varying amounts of husky to chubby to fat, but I haven't been skinny since like the second grade. And even that was mostly due to nervously throwing up all the time like a misfiring water sprinkler. So any nutritional advice is probably a moot point coming from me. I try to eat healthy and remain active, but it's always been a struggle for me. For any health advice, you should talk to your doctor and not get it from a guy who is currently eating a cookie as he writes this episode in a lounging robe. Okay, now that the awkward portion of this episode is over, we can move on to the argument that high fructose corn syrup is particularly linked to the obesity epidemic. In a lot of ways, this argument has a lot of merits on the surface. The rise of obesity in the United States seems to have coincided with the use of high fructose corn syrup as a replacement for sucrose, starting in the 60s and continuously growing into the 80s until today. The problem we're now finding with this argument is that it doesn't actually appear to be fructose per se that's the problem, but our overall consumption of empty sugars and calories, and a general lack of exercise amongst the population. Interestingly though, that's kind of been the argument this entire time coming from nutritionists, doctors, and other medical professionals. I mean, sugar initially became kind of part of the public discussion on obesity and health problems with the publication in the early 70s of Pure White and Deadly, a book by John Yudkin. And that book basically said that, you know, eating so much sugar in the Western diet was probably not good for us. It probably was going to lead to increased obesity as they were seeing at the time and potentially problems with like cancers and all kinds of other things. But why high fructose corn syrup became kind of the catch-all boogeyman for this as opposed to just sugar in general is sort of a mystery. I think it has something to do with the idea that high fructose corn syrup is produced in a chemical reactor in some ways or is not naturally necessarily found in our diet as much as glucose and sucrose. But still, any huge amount of anything is going to probably be bad for you, right? If you drink enough water, you can drown. Now. This idea that it's not high fructose corn syrup in particular, but it's all sugar, has been true in the vast majority of studies performed, showing no particular link between high fructose corn syrup use and obesity, but rather a link between sugar intake, caloric intake, and lack of exercise in obesity. This is a quote from the abstract of a paper published in the Journal of the American College of Nutrition by Moeller et al. in December of 2009. Quote, High fructose corn syrup, or HFCS, has become an increasingly common food ingredient in the last 40 years. However, there is concern that HFCS consumption increases the risk for obesity and other adverse health outcomes compared to other caloric sweeteners. The most commonly used types of high fructose corn syrup, high fructose corn syrup 42 and high fructose corn syrup 55, are similar in composition to sucrose, table sugar consisting of roughly equal amounts of fructose and glucose. The primary difference is that these monosaccharides exist free in solution in HFCS, but in disaccharide form in sucrose. In other words, and this isn't in the abstract itself, what they're saying is that when it's sucrose, it's bonded together so the glucose and fructose are together, but in high fructose corn syrup, the glucose and fructose have already been separated. Okay, back to the quote. The disaccharide sucrose is easily cleaved in the small intestine, so free fructose and glucose are absorbed from both sucrose and HFCS. The advantage to food manufacturers is that the free monosaccharides in HFCS provide better flavor enhancement, stability, freshness, texture, 
color, pourability, and consistency in foods in comparison to sucrose. Because the composition of HFCS and sucrose is so similar, particularly on adsorption by the body, it appears unlikely that high-fructose corn syrup contributes more to obesity or other conditions than sucrose does. Nevertheless, few studies have evaluated the potentially differential effect of various sweeteners, particularly as they relate to health conditions such as obesity, which developed over relatively long periods of time. Improved nutrient databases are needed to analyze food consumption in epidemiologic studies, as are more strongly designed experimental studies, including those on the mechanism of action in relationship between fructose, dose, and response. At the present time, there is insufficient evidence to ban or otherwise restrict use of high-fructose corn syrup or other fructose-containing sweeteners in the food supply, or to require the use of warning labels on products containing high-fructose corn syrup. Nevertheless, dietary advice to limit consumption of all added caloric sweeteners, including high-fructose corn syrup, is warranted." End quote. And that argument in that abstract, basically, boils down to the following thing. When you eat sucrose, what occurs is the body will begin to digest it by breaking apart the glucose and fructose. The fructose is then digested in such a way that it becomes glucose down the line. So you end up with basically two molecules of glucose, which is what the body can then use. In high fructose corn syrup, the only difference is that the body doesn't have to break them apart since it's already glucose and fructose. So their argument is that mechanistically, it doesn't make sense that high fructose corn syrup would be more dangerous than sucrose in any way. This author also says that although they would like to see more information and more research on these things in a more serious way, there is not enough evidence so far in the scientific literature to say that high fructose corn syrup is dangerous. And they end, of course, with a pretty common refrain in these papers, saying that high fructose corn syrup and other sweeteners should just be limited generally since it's all making us super fat. Now, that paper is a little bit softer in its conclusions, but the general argument that high fructose corn syrup has no particular link to obesity outside of the general link between sugars and calories and obesity is common throughout the literature. With various levels of hedging by the authors to say, well, we don't know enough, or, you know, outright saying there's absolutely no reason to do any more research on this um, throughout. I think it's a safe bet that high fructose corn syrup doesn't really seem to have much more of an effect on obesity than other sugars. And this sort of makes sense from our previous discussions, right? If sucrose is safe, and sucrose is almost immediately broken apart in the digestion process to fructose and glucose, then what danger could be posed by consuming simple glucose or fructose in the same quantities? Now, those who argue for the dangers of high-fructose corn syrup would say that fructose is not digested in exactly the same way as glucose, and therefore can in fact be causing metabolic disorders or increased fat production or all sorts of other problems. However, the evidence is simply not there to support that claim. Although each of the papers in literature almost always seems to end by suggesting that we should consume less sugars generally, and this is supported by science. But even that argument has recently become extremely heightened in recent months, with a YouTube video of a presentation by Dr. Robert Lustig of the University of California San Francisco Medical School titled Sugar, 
the bitter truth, suggesting that all sugar is as destructive for us as alcohol or nicotine. Now, this discussion, that sugar generally in the quantities we consume may be dangerous or lead to heightened diseases such as diabetes, heart disease, or various cancers, is still not considered to be supported by the majority of scientists out there. I think it's a more sensible suggestion, and one that probably is deserving of further study, just as many of these papers claim. Now, fructose is digested differently than glucose in the body, and there is some evidence to support the idea that fructose consumption may lead to more fat deposition or all kinds of other things, but ultimately the science out there says that there's no clear link, or if there is a link, it has to do with sugars generally. So I think, again, the, the safest bet here for this argument is that eating a buttload of sugar more than we ever could before is probably not good for us in any form. So, you know, try to eat more fruits and vegetables, kids. <laughs> I think a part of the problem with fructose versus glucose or sucrose is that there are some compounds where a slight change in chemical functional group, shape or structure, or even chirality, a sort of left-handed or right-handedness of molecules, can have a drastic effect on their use. Chirality is a particularly interesting one, but it's a concept that is very hard to define using just voice through a podcast. So we'll do a little experiment together. I want you to look at your hands, unless you're driving, in which case I want you to look at the road and ignore everything that I'm saying. In looking at your hands, you'll notice that your left hand and right hand are composed the same way. They have the same structure and number of fingers and everything, but aren't exactly the same in symmetry because they're mirror images of one another. In other words, if you lined your hands up one on top of the other, both palms down, you couldn't find a way to move them about with both of their palms down in such a way that they could be identical to one another. This means that your hands have a property known as chirality. In other words, although they are structurally the same, they are shaped in such a way that they have entirely different symmetry from one another. In this way, your hands would be considered chiral molecules. Two molecules with the same structure, the same functional groups, and basically the same way that the molecule is put together, but a different right-handed or left-handedness. So molecules can have that same property, and this can actually have a huge effect on their eventual effect on the body. The most famous example of this is L-methamphetamine and D-methamphetamine, with the L version being safe for human consumption and is being used in a variety of cold medicines, and the right molecule being used to make Ted Nugent palatable. It's this sort of subtle change in molecular structure that I think makes arguments about fructose and glucose having significantly different properties so sensible sounding at the outset. I mean, frankly, I wasn't sure about the health differences between fructose or glucose before starting the research for this episode. But it's a safe bet based on all of the literature that there is no scientifically valid reason to think that one is more dangerous than the other, at least based on what we know now. Alright, so how about the argument that it causes cancers, or can make us stupid, or causes us to have mental health problems? Well again, this would have to be true of sucrose and glucose as well, and any other sugar frankly, since all of the scientific evidence supports the idea that these compounds are pretty much used by the body in the same ways. Again, the argument sort of falls away, with one caveat however. During the 90s, some high fructose corn syrup manufacturing utilized an electrochemical process 
that utilized a mercury component, some of which appear to have leaked into some batches of high fructose corn syrup. Now, supposedly, all industrial methods of producing corn syrups today no longer use this electrochemical process, and so the threat of mercury being found in these compounds should no longer be an issue. And like with anything involving high fructose corn syrup, there's a lot of speculation about how much mercury was found, what form the mercury was in, and what sort of political and economic gains are present for either side of the argument on this one. Regardless, this scare was enough to further damage the high fructose corn syrup name, to the point that corn manufacturers attempted to change the name of this additive to corn sugar in the late 2000s, with the FDA actually telling them that they could not officially alter the name of the compound. Now, another important point here is that the FDA and generally every expert panel of nutritionists and doctors that they've put together have determined that high fructose corn syrup is generally recognized as safe. In other words, they found that there's no compelling reason to think that high fructose corn syrup is any worse for us than any other type of sugar. That being said, I think it is very important for the public and for people generally to pay attention to where those claims are coming from, right? Um, for instance, a lot of food manufacturers will sell low-fat versions of foods with more fructose in them than glucose because fructose is digested slightly differently than glucose in the body and so has a lower glycemic index score. Ultimately, you're still taking in an empty calorie, and it's probably something that isn't going to be good for you in the long run, right? And it's also, I think, important that we, we keep saying, and, and this is a point I don't think I've actually made enough in this episode, that studies on the effect of food on the general population, and just studies generally on what putting something into our bodies has on our overall health in the long term, are extremely difficult studies to perform. I mean, we can't keep humans in a perfectly sealed cage, right? We can't keep them in an environment where scientific study is really super possible in that sort of way. And so when looking at these big kind of like macro systems, like a society or a population or even a family, it can be really difficult to gauge some, some really exactness in what these compounds are doing to the body. That being said, all the scientific literature, as we've said throughout this episode, suggests that it's not high fructose corn syrup that is ultimately a danger to the human body, but potentially all sugars and just general overeating, overcaloric intake, and lack of exercise. So it's kind of what your mom always told you, right? Or at least my mom did. Um, eat lots of pasta. No, I'm just kidding. That is what my mom told me, but I'm just kidding there. It, it really is, you know, eat less jog, walk, whatever, do something fun that's active for you more. And one final interesting point that I want to get into here is a kind of fascinating one, and it's one that a listener specifically asked me to touch on with this episode. And it's the idea that being fat is a sign of being unintelligent. Now, the societal idea of the oafish layabout, the fat simpleton, or the actively intellectual, you know, like the, the 600-pound person living in a trailer somewhere who, you know, like in the Simpsons when Lisa is, you know, I wash myself with a rag on a stick, right? Like that image is super common in the Western world. And 
I, I often wonder what amount of TV news is accepted so readily without understanding or critical thinking because the anchors are attractive men and women who we assume must be smart and ethical and good because their outsides surely represent their insides. It's a very interesting societal knee-jerk reaction, one that I think is found in arguments like this with high-fructose corn syrup. Why would high-fructose corn syrup, a sugar additive, make us stupid? I can see why it might make us fat, but why would it make us stupid? Why does that seem to have some intrinsic sensibility to it, at least in my mind? Some nagging feeling that it confirms some prejudice that's been ingrained in me by our culture. It's a point I think is important here. And in all arguments around health of all kinds, not just physical, but also mental, and one that I think we could honestly do an entire series on if there was enough interest. But basically, I think it's important to look at, again, the actual science, the actual data here. What effect do these things have on our bodies, on our minds? Um, and really, there is no evidence to support the idea that high fructose corn syrup is part of a larger government conspiracy to dumb us down and turn us into sheeple. I mean, that's kind of, the, that's kind of the, what boils down to this argument, really. It's an argument we're going to get into, I, I promise you, in more detail when we do an episode on fluoridation in water. Uh, that should be a really fun one to do. I'm sure I'll get plenty of, uh, I'm sure I'll get plenty of angry emails from, uh, from people who don't listen to the show often, but who I seem to still get emails from arguing against me on all these types of topics. All right, so high fructose corn syrup, not exactly as dangerous as many people claim, but still potentially not harmless, or at least just as harmful as any other high calorie, low nutrition food. That's it for this week's episode of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be recording some awesome guest spots this month, including a few from your favorite Dark Myth shows and some from other awesome podcasting folks. As always, you can send your questions or comments to us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com, all one word. If you like the show, consider helping us out by contributing on the Patreon page by giving us a review on iTunes or any other podcast listening app, or by telling a friend about the show. Thank you again so much for listening. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on, it wasn't come that on. bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network.